Heavenly Father, what a glorious truth we can proclaim today and praise you for. Because of what you have done, it's well with our souls. We thank you for that. And we pray now as we come to your word, really the the stage has been set already, that you are a, a holy God. You are worthy of our praise. Would you help us see that today and change our hearts because of it? In Jesus' name, amen. Have a seat. Thank you, worship team, for leading us. You did your job of showing us Jesus and helping our hearts exult in him. So thank you for that. At home recently, my wife and I replaced one of our washroom ventilation fans that was malfunctioning. But before we did that, we did something really important first. I had my wife stand in the washroom as I ran downstairs, and I told her to yell down to me when the lights went off because I was going to turn the breaker off before we're dealing with changing it over. So I didn't know which fuse the the fan of the washroom was on, so I had to guess. So here I'm flicking off fuse after fuse, waiting to to hear my wife call down to me. After a little while, I'm thinking, it's got to be off by now. So I run back upstairs, and sure enough, it's off, along with most of the rest of the house. And I just (laughs) turned basically everything off. But she had been yelling for a while. I just didn't hear her down in the basement. But why do we have to do that? Why do we have to go through that annoying little process exercise of turning off the breaker because we knew that we need to be really careful around electricity right it's dangerous so we had to to turn it off before we did it it's the same really with anything potentially dangerous that we have to handle at times fire gas chemicals saws romaine lettuce Even just driving our vehicles on icy or snowy roads, right? Whenever we deal with these things, we're very conscientious and careful. We're more aware of our surroundings. We're we're more aware of our movements. Because we know that we have to be careful or else the consequences could be severe. I want to suggest that there's something else that we need to be careful with in life. It's not really hazardous as much as it is precious, yet it's often ignored in its familiarity. What do we need to be careful with? Ourselves. With ourselves. Now that may sound strange, but is there anything more precious that we possess, more valuable that we possess, than our own souls? And, are, and yet, are we truly careful with them, with ourselves? Do we, or do we treat our souls carelessly? Now, you may not be dangerous, but you are precious. So, be aware of that, and we need to be careful. Let's open up our copies of God's Word to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy 4, to where we'll hear Moses warn us of the dangers of carelessness, at the same time showing us the the hope of God's compassion for us. 
So they turn there to Deuteronomy 4. Last week we heard Moses talk about the, the need for obedience in the life of God's people. He's really putting the finishing touches on preparing the people to hear from God's law once again. Follow along with me once you find your place. We'll start in verse 5. That's partway through what we started last week. Verse 5, he says this, See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear all the statue, all these statutes will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? So in essence here, he's saying God was great in his care for his people, in his nearness to them. The, the laws that he gave them were great in their righteousness and so really the people of Israel would be seen as great as well as long as they followed the Lord and his law. But now Moses is going to tell them what was perhaps the greatest threat to this ideal situation. And that is soul negligence. Soul, S-O-U-L, soul negligence. If they weren't careful with themselves... They would jeopardize everything. Look at verse 9. It says, Only take care and keep your soul diligently. Only take care and keep your soul diligently. That take care at the beginning is not like our casual farewells. Take care. <laughs> no, this is be careful. Be careful. It's the word shamar in Hebrew, which Moses uses 65 times in Deuteronomy. Ajith Fernando explains this verse could be translated, only take care to take care of your soul diligently. We are to be careful about being careful. Such repetition is a way to stress a point. Here it adds to the importance and seriousness of the pursuit. So it means something like, be extremely careful to guard your souls. If we are not alert to the possibility of carelessness, we will unintentionally become careless. And when it talks about your soul there, that's talking about the, the spiritual you on the inside. All right? The, the non-physical, invisible consciousness that inhabits your body. And the, the part of you that, that loves, that reasons, that worships, that remembers, that ponders, that prays. And to, to keep your soul is to take care of it, to protect it, to, to guard it, to watch it carefully. Essentially, your soul is you. You are a body and a soul put together. And so what we need to keep is ourselves. Like other versions translate, watch yourselves or give heed to yourself. Now, this is something that I think we probably underestimate the importance of, of keeping our souls, keeping a close watch on ourselves. By the way, this is also a New Testament command. It's given by no less than Jesus, Paul, and John. For example, Paul tells Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, or by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. 
Now let me ask you this question. Try to answer it very honestly for your own sake. Are you, if you follow Christ today, are you a careful Christian or a careless Christian? Are you a careful Christian or a careless Christian? Are you very careful about the way that you live or not so much? Do you treat your spiritual life seriously or frivolously? Do you have a a finger on the pulse of your soul? How is it doing? Fernando also says, I have often felt that carelessness is the mother of sin. Overt disobedience isn't usually triggered by a deliberate decision to disobey, but by carelessness resulting in a slow slide into sin. Uh, If that doesn't convince you of the danger of carelessness, you may still wonder, well, why? Why should we keep our souls diligently? Why live so carefully? Well, Moses is going to answer these questions very well. And the principles behind what he says easily still apply to us today. Even though we're in a very different situation than the Israelites were, they still apply to us. The first is this. We need to watch ourselves carefully so we remember what we've seen and heard from God. All right? We need to watch ourselves carefully so we remember what we've seen and heard from God. You may have already noticed this. Verse 9. Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Lest you forget. This is the danger. Our our memories are, are stored inside of us as long as we continue to remember them. Now think. What do you do when you really want to remember some moment or event? Well, these days you'll often take a picture, right? Or 200 pictures. You'll post it on social media, you'll put it in a a scrapbook or a picture frame, and every time that you see that photo, it reminds you of that moment in time. Why do we do this? Well, it's because... We feel that certain things are worth remembering, right? They're worth remembering, and also because we're so very forgetful, aren't we? I mean, there are moments, there are pictures of moments in my photo albums that I would never remember if a picture hadn't been taken of them. Now, what Moses wants us to remember here may be more difficult to remember than those things because there aren't likely many pictures of things that God has done for us. Yet, they are far more crucial things that we have to be sure we remember. They're a lot more crucial than things like random parties or places that we have been in life. My grandmother suffered from Alzheimer's for many years before she passed away, and it was tragic to watch as the woman that she was really deteriorated in front of our eyes. And it really, it drastically affected how she related to us, to those people that she knew. The scholar George Athos explains that identity is tightly connected to memory. 
our past shapes who we are in a profound way. As we know, when someone loses their memory, either through amnesia or dementia, they experience an identity crisis that displaces their personality and radically alters all their relationships. Moses then urges Israel not to engage in collective amnesia. And so too, we must do our best to fight off the amnesia that constantly threatens our souls, lest we forget. Lest we forget the way that our hearts were transformed when Christ saved us. Lest we forget the ways that, the many ways we have seen God at work in the world around us. Lest we forget the the countless answers to prayer that we've seen, big or small. Lest we forget the gospel. Right? Christ's life, death, and resurrection. This is why we must constantly preach it to ourselves and to each other. This is why every month, regularly, we celebrate the Lord's Supper together in order to remember I wonder, has the, has the gospel grown cold to you? Does it excite you, does it, or does it fail to excite you like it once did? Uh, perhaps you have failed to keep your soul diligently. Perhaps you've ignored time with the Lord, either individually or corporately. Perhaps you never remind yourself of gospel truth when you fall short. If you live with a constant sense of guilt, you've likely forgotten the gospel. Forgetfulness is an ever-present threat to our identity, to our health, to our souls, and also to our children, which is why Moses says this next. Look at verse 9 again. It says, lest you forget the things your eyes have seen, lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. See, their remembering had to go beyond just their generation. It needed to last. And if God has blessed you with kids or grandkids, maybe even great-grandkids, ask yourself the question, are you making this known to them? These kinds of things. Do they know the work that God has done in your life? And in your heart, do they know how much you love Jesus? Do they know, do they, do they really know about Jesus and what he's done for them? Or are you just hoping that they'll catch these things at church? Just like anything in life, we'll need to tell them and tell them again and tell them again and again if we really want them to be able to internalize it, to remember themselves, and to pass it on. And kids, if your parents are making an effort to teach you about God, pay attention. Use your amazing memories to store what God has done deep in your heart. So the message puts it for all of us. Don't let your heart wander off. Stay vigilant as long as you live. So, what have you seen 
from God? What have you seen from God? It's worth thinking about that so that we remember. By the way, now that Jesus has come, we have seen, in a way, even greater things than they had. Even though we haven't seen Jesus with our own physical eyes, we will one day. 1 Peter 1.8 says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice. As we wait for his return, we rejoice. Israel had seen quite a few things, but Moses really wanted them to remember one in particular. Even though, really, it was their parents who had witnessed this firsthand. He spends the next several verses talking about it. He says, Make them known to your children and your children's children how on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, so they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children so. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. Now these events at Mount Horeb, also known as Mount Sinai, were a spectacular display of God's power. I recently compared it to something like standing at the foot of an active volcano in an earthquake with a severe thunderstorm overhead in the dark of night. It, was, it would have been visually breathtaking and utterly terrifying. It says there in verse 11, And you came near, and you stood at the foot of the mountain, while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. But here, you can start to see some of God's purpose for this whole spectacle at Mount Horeb. As he said in verse 10, Gather the people to me, that I might let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children so. Now notice something really interesting there. God wanted them to, to hear from him first, so that they would personally learn to fear him, so that they would teach others to do the same. The order went from a focus on God to a focus on self, to a focus on others, up, in, and then out. Very much like our own mission statement as a church, to worship God, grow together, and then serve others. Him first, always, so that we grow ourselves, so that we love others like he does. The question we have to ask ourselves as we read that is, is do these words or can these words describe us? Let me evaluate that. Do they describe you? Do they describe us? As Moses continues describing this event at Horeb, he emphasizes one aspect of it. And it may seem strange at first, but it's actually the most important part of what happened. Verse 11, And you came near, stood at the foot of the mountain, while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. Dramatic pause. <laughs> then the Lord spoke. To you out of the midst of the fire. This is the climax. Okay? Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. And he declared to you his covenant, 
which he commanded you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules that you might do them in the land that you are going over to possess. Now this actually reveals why it's so vital that God's people remember what God said and did. And that's because God speaks. It's that simple. God is active. He's communicative. He's relevatory. We need to be careful to remember what we've seen and heard from God because he speaks. He's a speaking God. Moses says, listen, the craziest part of Sinai wasn't the fire or the clouds or the earthquake. God spoke to us. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. We're going to come back in a moment to the significance of the not seeing a form for God. But the point for now is to remember how awesome God's voice was. How amazing and, and gracious it was that he was giving them his law. And how important it was that they, they learned this law and obeyed it in the days ahead. But God spoke powerfully then, and he still speaks today. This was much the point of Hebrews 12, which we studied a couple months back. Talked about Sinai. And it said that believers now, they have not come to a, a blazing fire mountain, but that we've instead come to Mount Zion. We've come to a, a new kingdom, a party in heaven. So things are, are quite different now. The kingdom, the covenant that we have is even greater. But one thing is still ongoing. And that's that God is still speaking to us even today. This is how it concludes in Hebrews 12. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? That's Jesus. At, the say, at that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens at the end of time. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And do you get the point there? He's basically saying the stakes are even higher now. So are you hearing God's words? Are you hearing him speak? And if such a, a great thing is happening as God is speaking to us, God forbid that we forget what we hear. Consider what you must do in order to better remember, to be careful to remember these things. So Moses was concerned that his people remembered well. That's not all. He was also concerned, maybe mostly concerned, that they worshipped well. That's what he was hinting at when he talked about God having no form in verse 12. He said, you heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. Now he's going, that, see, the Israelites saw a lot of things on that day, right? But they never saw God himself. In verse 15, he's going to pick up this thread. Therefore, 
Watch yourselves very carefully. There's the big idea again. Watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the sea. And beware, lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the hosts of heaven, and you be drawn away and bowed down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. You follow Moses' flow of thought here? He's like, God met us at Sinai but he purposely never showed us what he looked like. He is spirit. He is unseen. Therefore, don't worship anything that has an image. That's his full of thought. That included false gods, natural objects, or an image that was meant to represent Yahweh. Here's what I believe to be the main point that we can take away, that Moses was communicating here. We need to watch ourselves carefully so we rightly worship the unseen God. We need to watch ourselves carefully so we rightfully, rightly worship the unseen God. Verse 15, Therefore watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to Ahorab out of the midst of the fire. Beware lest you act corruptly, by making a carved image for yourselves. The, the fact that, that God was formless and unseen was a reason to avoid idolatry. But it was also why Israel might have been particularly vulnerable to idolatry. Whenever we're faced with something that is beyond us, something unexplainable, something infinite, our tendency is to try to bring it down to our level to try to, to explain it, to try to tame it, to domesticate it. Hence why people from, from the earliest times have worshipped tangible things, like carved idols or created things like the sun and stars, animals, people. Something that they can touch. But we cannot, we must not try to bring Yahweh, Almighty God, down to our level. If we try to make him more tame or palatable or culturally acceptable, we create a false image diminishing his glory and demeaning his holiness. No wonder God cares so much about this. No wonder we have to be so careful about this. We're dealing with his glory and his holiness. There's a fascinating little thing that Moses does here when he lists out the potential false images. He starts with humans, and then he moves to land animals, and then birds and bugs and fish, and then the sun and moon, stars, all the heavenly bodies. This is the exact reverse order of how God created things in the beginning. Chris Wright says that the point is that idolatry not only corrupts God's redemptive achievement for God's people, but perverts and turns upside down the whole created order. You may think, oh, good news, Pastor Matt. 
this isn't an issue for me at all. Right? I'm not tempted to, to carve a statue or maybe these days 3D print a statue that I will bow down and worship. Not a problem for me. But if worship is more than just a physical act of bowing down, and it is, if worship is our souls, our inner person, honoring and loving and praising something, and it is, if worship is orienting our lives and our affections around something, and it is, then you know as well as I do that we are tempted to worship other things all the time. I mean, show me your credit card statement and your calendar and I'll show you your idols. Things that we can see or touch. Things that we can have some level of control over. Things that we submit to or serve more than we submit to or serve God. Our idols could be very good things. Right? After all, the, the sun, moon, wood, stone, these are all good things. Family, money, houses, food, pets, holidays, technology. These are all good things usually. But if we take a good thing and make it a God, then we do an evil thing to make something an ultimate thing that is not God. And so we, like the Israelites, really need to take this seriously and carefully. And as Moses says, beware. Beware lest you do this. And when we, we seek to worship God himself with our singing or praying or giving or loving, and we should be sure that we are worshiping him as he wants to be worshipped. Should, as Psalm 29.2 says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Could your worship of God be described as that? Is it reverential? Is it passionate? Is it from your heart? Is it grateful? And is it all about him? And after all, that's really what Moses has been focusing all along. It's all about him. Just like we need to be careful to remember because of who God is as a speaking God, we need to be careful with our worship because of who God is as well. See, in contrast to all these, these worthless idols who can't ultimately help people at all, here's what God did. Look at verse 20. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. Here's the point. We need to watch ourselves carefully so we rightly worship the unseen God, for God saves. For God saves. Careful how you worship, because God is the only God who saves. 
Verse 20 really is the focal point of this whole passage. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. Really, this reveals just how treacherous falling into idolatry would be. Right? If God had done this, been this gracious to his people, how could they dare turn on him now? God had rescued them out of Egypt, the iron furnace, as he calls it, which is just what it sounds like. An, an iron furnace was a type of blast furnace where iron was smelted from raw ore. And they, these furnaces usually ran 24-7. It's continuous fire with this roar and smoke and extreme heat. It symbolizes well what the Israelites had gone through to slave continuously, likely in some pretty severe heat. They had been miserable. But God had saved them from this. At this point, he took them out of the furnace. He'd taken them, brought them out, made them his own inheritance, a prized possession of his. And in his grace, he has done far more for us. Rescuing us from the dominion of darkness. Delivering us from our sins. From Satan's clutches. Saving us from death. From hell. And we are now his inheritance. 1 Peter 2.9 puts it well. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now notice there, the reason we're saved is so that we proclaim his praises, so that we worship. But if, if God loved us this much, so much that he would send his son to die for us, how could we ever give him less than our utmost affections? How could we ever pour out our lives on non-divine, non-saving, useless substitutes? If you have not yet given him your heart, I hope you will today. You can be His today. And we're chasing after things of yourself, after things of this world, futilely. But you can be His. And if we are already saved, if we're already God's possession, we need to come to grips with that, right? That we belong to Him. And He's righteously possessive of what is his own. Which is another reason for why we need to worship God carefully. Because God saves, and God is jealous for those he saves. God is jealous for the people he saves. So, worship rightly. Look how Moses continues. I think you'll see this. Verse 21 
Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me because of you, and he swore that I should not cross the Jordan, and that I should not enter the good land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. For I must die in this land, I must not go over the Jordan, but you shall go over and take possession of that good land. And we read that story more in depth in chapter 3, but if even Moses was judged for not treating God as holy in everyone's sight one time, what would Israel's fate be if they were drawn away into serious idolatry? So he repeats, verse 23, Take care! If you, if you fall into idolatry, you forsake God and his covenant. Take care, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Like, you thought an iron furnace was hot. That just purified iron. God's fire is hot enough to consume it. Anything, really. As we read earlier in Hebrews 12, this is still 100% true of God. It quotes directly from verse 24 there. And this, too, should lead us to worship. Thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. What does it mean that God is jealous? Or as I said, that God is jealous for those he saves. And there's an envious, sinful kind of jealousy, and that's what we usually think of when we say jealous. But there's also a, a holy jealousy, like a, like a husband and wife would have for each other. I am jealous that my wife remains faithful to me, and she is the same for me. That's good. Right? If we were ever spurned, it would, only, it would bring on this holy wrath about it. God loves his people in an even stronger, purer way than any person has ever loved their spouse. As Chris Wright explains it, the fire of Yahweh as a jealous God is the fire of an exclusive commitment to this people that demands an exclusive commitment in return. It is, in short, the fire of redeeming love that had brought them out of the fires of bondage and would therefore tolerate no rival. Do you catch that? It's the fire of redeeming love that had brought them out of the fires of bondage and would therefore tolerate no rival. It's a, it is a jealousy that is an evidence of God's love for us. It is, it's good for us and it's for our good. We must be vigilant to worship him rightly. To misrepresent him, to worship something else, is akin to spiritual adultery. So take care. Take care. Don't forget God's love and thus spurn him. For the Lord, your God, is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Worship rightly. 
the final paragraph will read essentially says, and if you don't, this is what's going to happen. When you father children and your children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. It's like, I may not be alive to call you on this, but the same sun is going to be shining. The, the, the very ground that you are on will be under your feet. Creation sees now, and God could call them as witnesses in a trial against you. Besides this, God sees. Verse 27, And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. This is talking about being cast out of the land of promise and exiled, which, as you may know, tragically happened. A few centuries later, the people of Israel fell into this relentless idolatry and they were exiled. Verse 27 says that the Lord himself would drive them out and scatter them. And reversing the covenant with Abraham, only a few of them would remain. Now, I don't know if you've ever felt like you hit rock bottom in life. This would be Israel's rock bottom. But imagine if, if someone was able to go back in time, or they were already back there in, in your history, and they, were, they went there to, to warn you about the future and to tell you exactly how to avoid rock bottom. That'd be great, right? To have that forewarning. That's what Moses is doing now. He's telling people that if they stayed faithful to God, this terrible outcome would never take place. And the most tragic irony of exile... Verse 28, and there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. In other words, their sin would become their punishment. Their sin would become their punishment, their unfaithfulness and its corresponding uselessness would become their curse. It's like Romans 1 talks about God giving us over to our sins and perversions. Ask yourself today, if God gave you over to your sinful desires, your sinful fantasies, what would that look like? Sometimes it may sound enticing at first or exciting, but it would destroy you. It would destroy you. It's, it's good to, to picture the end result of what sin would be and let the fear of that drive you away from it. But there, there's something else that really should be driving us away from that toward God, toward God specifically, and that's where we're going to end today. Moses has painted this picture of utter calamity if Israel ever turned their back on God. But... That wouldn't be the end of the story. Even in the midst of, of judgment and disaster, even in exile, 
far away from the promised land, there would be hope. Look at verse 29. But from there, but from there, you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you're in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. Now that is beautiful. I believe that it reveals one final way we can keep our souls diligently. We need to watch ourselves carefully so we always return to the ever-present God. We need to watch ourselves carefully so we always return to God who never leaves us. You might recognize the words of verse 29. The prophet Jeremiah quotes them. In Jeremiah 29, 13, a very familiar verse, but it goes here, But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. You know what this is talking about? Repentance. This is repentance. God would send his people into a, a bleak place. They would be on the brink of annihilation. However, despite the warnings here of utter destruction, they, there would still be a remnant. He'd keep a remnant alive. And the door was always cracked open. There was always a way, to, a way back, a way to return. If they would turn, they could come back. If they would turn from their sins and earnestly turn back to God. From there you will seek the Lord your God. You will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. They might not have been able to see God, but they would be able to seek him and find him. But what, what amazing comfort and hope this gives us, right? We who often carelessly fall into sin ourselves. I love Jesus. He's my Lord. And yet I sense how idolatrous my own heart can be. I need to be careful that whenever I do fall, I repent thoroughly and as quickly as possible. That's what I mean by we need to be sure we always return to the Lord. If the door was always open for the Israelites, rest assured it's even more open for believers. But don't imagine that you can get off with half-hearted turning away from sin now. Repentance still requires your whole heart, your whole soul. If you seek the Lord your God, you will find him. If you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. And this really reveals the ultimate thing that motivates us. And that's the incredible mercy of God. Incredible mercy of God. We need to watch ourselves carefully so we always return to the ever-present God, for God is merciful. 
Watch over your souls. Repent quickly. Whenever you do fall, for God is merciful. Moses says that very directly. You saw it in verse 31. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. You might add there that God is faithful, right? He will not leave, will not destroy, will not forget the covenant. Once Israel fell into this widespread idolatry, there is no way that they deserved this from God. No way. He wasn't obligated to to dole out mercy or to ever take Israel back. And there's no way that any of us deserve this kind of mercy from God either. But it's his promise to the people that he has saved and made a covenant with that he will never leave them nor forsake them. In fact, even in exile he never left. It says, he will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. This is why he said he's the ever-present God. He's always there. It might sound funny that, to say that we return to someone who never left us. But it's true. It's what we do. And his covenant will never be broken. Which is an even greater promise under Christ Jesus. Hebrews 8.6 tells us that the new covenant that Christ mediates is a better covenant than the old one because it was enacted on better promises. Better promises than even this. I don't know what better way to end today than to urge you to run to Christ. Whether for the first time or the 15,000th time. Find his mercies are new today. Moses' words here do not excuse sin in the least or tell us to treat it lightly. If anything, we must be far more careful than we've been. Careful to remember, careful to rightly worship, and careful to return in repentance. If today, if today you feel like you've carelessly slipped into something, carelessly drifted into something. Today's an opportunity to return. The door's open to seek the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul. Do whatever you must do to do this. He is ever-present always there, patiently waiting as we constantly roam. Even if we at times seem to leave him, he will never leave us. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these words that encourage our hearts, challenge us to live more for you alone and yet hold out mercy for when we don't. Lord, you are holy, you are good, and you are love. And so we come today and we rejoice in that. 
I pray for any heart here who is wrestling with these things and is wrestling on whether or not to return to you, to run to you. Would your spirit move in them? And would they do so by your power? In Jesus' name, amen.